0: Welcome back. I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Opiango Line. And today, we're making a valiant effort to celebrate Canada Day by turning back the clock 154 years and listening to a conversation between Art Milne and Sean Conway as these two aficionados of Canadian political history discuss Dominion Day, 1867. Let's get back to them.
1: Well, Sean, we've been talking a lot about, you know, what happened on Parliament Hill, how we got there, how failed were the constitutional arrangements tried before. But what we haven't talked about, I don't think, we haven't talked about the new nationality that these guys thought, and they were guys, thought they were creating. How important is that to the whole scheme?
2: Well, there's no question that uh, for many, though not all of the English Canadians in particular, uh, there was uh, great hope that uh, by uh, broadening the Union to include more than just Ontario and Quebec, to bring in other of the colonies in British North America. Remember, while at the end of the day, Confederation just brought together the Province of Canada, which was then split into two, Ontario and Quebec, added to that were Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. New- Newfoundland, and uh, PEI they said no they said no they pulled out for their own (laughs) reasons we don't need to get into so the hope was that the kind of factionalism the kind of language and religious and and cultural divisions that it's so divided particularly the uh, the English in Ontario from the French in Quebec through the post-rebellion period could somehow be bridged With a new arrangement that was more encompassing. Well, am I Uh,
1: not right to assume that Darcy McGee was the voice of that?
2: Oh, McGee for sure. Uh, McGee was at his uh, eloquent best when he talked about a new nationality that would, uh, you you know, and he talked, you you read McGee in 1865, 66, 67, it reminds you of those, some of those Government of Canada Uh, commercials during the uh, referendum debates of the 1980s and 90s where you've got the mountains and the rolling seas and the Canada goose. I mean we have to transcend the the petty divisions on the ground and inspire in almost a heavenly way to uh, a celestial
1: ideal. So how would the average man or woman on the street in Halifax have thought of McGee's oratory.
2: Well, uh, a Haligonian would have said, what are you talking about <laughs> except the ancient difficulties in the province of Ontario and the province of Quebec? And you are have been in this harness, the Union Parliament, where after those rebellions they forced you together in this unitary parliament to give you democratic government but to assimilate those French Canadians so you wouldn't be torn apart at every critical moment. But for us in Halifax, we, our citizenship is the citizenship in the British Empire. Uh, the locus of our loyalty is London. And we're not, we know we're not alone. And if you go up the river to Fredericton and around English Canada in the Atlantic world, uh, that's, that's the citizenship that we really care about. And by the way, because we're a maritime part of North America, uh, that's a big part of our economy. Uh, this this confederation movement is really uh, a, an effort to try to solve the age-old problems of Canada, Upper Canada, Lower Canada, Ontario, and Quebec. So they, their
1: problems in their minds are solved.
2: Well, they, they just don't they, see themselves. Uh, Nova Scotia v- rejects at that first <coughs> Dominion election in September 1867. They just routed the forces of the new nationality because they just don't want any part of it or so it seems by virtue of the the election results Um, but it wasn't just them that one of the most interesting critics of the confederation deal was an english-born american-raised intellectual almost a guy named christopher duncan from the eastern townships of quebec he says and makes what was widely regarded as the best and most critically uh successful analysis of the, the guts of this new confederation agreement and he talks about this new nationality and he says, listen, I'm an English-Canadian of loyalist stock, but what? I see nothing around me and I know nothing in my experience to suggest that just by uh, uh, you know a legislative fiat in Ottawa, uh, approved by a royal fiat in <coughs> London, all of those characteristics that make people want to be loyal to their Scottish Canadian roots to their, to their Irish Protestant Orange Order roots to their French Canadian you know, Maître Chenou roots are simply going to pass away that he said I think this is a dream it may in fact be um, it may be in fact a a well-intentioned dream but it is an impractical dream nonetheless and most interestingly uh, and I always like to uh, to cite this. Um, at those same confederation debates, there was another urbane, elegant uh, uh, French Huguenot, uh, French Protestant, French Canadian Protestant, uh, uh, Henri Gustave Joly de Lherville, uh, and he was uh, he was an anti-confederate. But he he was a very elegant, well-traveled, well-educated fellow. And this is what he says when the debate starts to rise to this level of be with us, be part of the new nationality in this new Canada that we want to create. Quoting from Henri Jolie-Lobinier's speech about that topic, he says the following. Well, given what you ask, I propose the adoption of the rainbow as the emblem for the new Canada. By the endless variety of its tints, the rainbow will give an excellent idea of the diversity of races, religions, sentiments and interests of the different parts of the new Canadian Confederation. By its slender and elongated form, the rainbow will afford a perfect representation of the geographical configuration of the new Canada. By its lack of consistence, an image without substance, the rainbow would represent aptly the solidity of our Confederation, an emblem we must have for every great empire has one, let us colleagues adopt the rainbow
1: <laughs> so he obviously wasn't a drinking partner of Darcy McGee's. no he wasn
2: 't a drinking <laughs> partner but you know Duncan, who I mentioned earlier was an Anglo Quebecer who kind of had the same view on the identity issue. Uh, Jolie uh, eloquently argues the case that really this is uh, this is more froth than fact um, well uh, you know. Jolie ends his days as an enormously popular lieutenant governor in British Columbia in the first decade of the 20, 20th century. And Christopher Duncan, who has grave doubts that this, you know, Joseph Howe derisively called this botheration scheme uh, that is Confederation. Well, Mr. Duncan is uh, after, immediately after Confederation is the first minister of Quebec, minister of finance for the province of Quebec after which he happily becomes the Minister of Agriculture in the new Dominion government at Ottawa. So it gives you an <laughs> idea that these were practical men of affairs. There, were, there was a wide range of opinion about what was possible, but they were practical to the degree that, while they may not have liked the Quebec scheme, when forced to say, well, what's your alternative? Uh, the anti-Confederates really didn't have anything that looked very viable.
1: Well, I was going to ask you that. So we now know where these two anti-Confederates end up. One of them is like a senior person, senior guy in the Quebec government.
2: That's before he, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead.
1: So then the other guy, who also doesn't like Confederation, he actually ends up as the Queen's representative, or in those days, Ottawa's representative in many ways, to probably the most patriotic thing canadians have ever done which is take a railway all the way to the pacific so
2: after but before he gets there between yeah. those confederation debates where Henri Le Jolie de laubiniere says what i just quoted about the rainbow yeah he stops along at quebec city long enough to be a liberal premier of quebec for a while too
1: okay so confederation works for him in yes. many ways so zipping ahead but not too long after july 1st 1867 how does darcy mcgee get repaid well, what it's, happens to Darcy?
2: Well, you know, the great spokesman for the new nationality was also the spokesman, as I've said a number of times in these con- this conversation, was most associated with the Irish, particularly the Irish Catholic constituency uh, in Ontario and Quebec. Um, and one of the things that's interesting, I didn't mention this when I talked about Ottawa earlier, one of the other things about Ottawa uh, in 1867 was it was a very Irish place. Uh, there were a lot of uh, the most Irish place in the province of Ontario uh, around the time of Confederation was Carleton County, uh, very heavily populated by mostly Irish Protestants um, Ironically, Ottawa City was the most Catholic city in Ontario at Confederation, uh, and that created some interesting dynamics but but McGee. The Irish population, as I've said earlier in these these, these conversations uh, around Canada Day 1867, the Irish problem was a real problem for the imperial government, and it affected uh, it affected uh, Confederation in a couple of ways. One, uh, those fiending raids in 1865 and 1866 really drove home the point that we were very vulnerable to an invasion from the United States. That that uh, you know, that uh, when those thousand people crossed the border, those Fenians that raided the Niagara frontier in the first few days of June uh, 1866, and there were at least a couple of dozen people killed in that that raid, uh, it just reminded uh, British uh, citizens living in Ontario at the time how vulnerable they were. What on earth would happen, as you said, if the American army decided to invade, that wasn't that was an entirely a different matter. And similarly, the anti-Confederates in New Brunswick were having a good debate until they were threatened with an invasion in 1865, 66, uh, along the New Brunswick-American border. And that really brought a sobering reality home and turned them to, well, we better do something to come together uh, as a greater group of colonies to protect ourselves in the event that we get a surprise attack. Then. The other part of this is that in the 19th century, as as the United Kingdom is on its way to becoming the greatest empire that had been, the one irresolvable problem they seemed to have was right in their own backyard. It was Ireland. After 300 years, they simply couldn't find a way to somehow resolve the Irish problem. And with the rise of America, that was now becoming a real interest uh, and a real concern in the North Atlantic world because if you were, um, you know, doing business in places like Montreal and Toronto and Fredericton, New Brunswick, uh, if the Irish problem was causing serious tension in Anglo American relations, you were very vulnerable to getting sideswiped in that, as the Fenian raids made plain. And McGee. Uh, was very eloquent, but he was unbelievably um, yeah, antagonistic. Antagonistic, And, and um, that's not even the strongest word. Darcy McGee reckless. made some of the most reckless, reckless and intemperate speeches about this revolutionary um, brand of Irish Republican radical nationalism. And he was surprised to find out that by Confederation, there were many more people who were sympathetic to uh, the more radical brand of Irish nationalism in Canada than than he had thought. And his riding in Montreal, Montreal um, West, he, in the Dominion election of um, early September, I think it was, he lost for the first time uh, the Irish vote in his own riding. And uh, that just intensified uh, the tensions between the radical faction of Irish nationalism, the the, the Fenians, and the more moderate, uh, let's find a, a, a you know a nonviolent way to solve this Irish problem, both in Ireland and between England and America. And seven or eight months, while well, it was April, April the seventh, um, 1868, less than a year from those eloquent speeches about a new nationality, Darcy McGee lay dead in a pool of his own blood. Um, in Ottawa, not more than five minutes from the uh, front entrance to the center block, as an indication that one of those divisions, a, a deep and sharp division uh, in the large Irish Canadian community, had led to the death of uh, of one of the uh, most famous of the Irish, uh, uh, the well, fathers gets, of
1: Confederation. He gets shot. Or he's on his feet in the house. ...particularly directing a speech at Nova Scotians, as we've talked about, the Bloc Québécois of the day, the Bloc Nova Scotia of the day, telling them to take the big, look at the big picture. Think beyond yourselves. And McGee says, I hope that in this house, mere temporary or local popularity will never be made the test by which to measure the worth or efficiency of a public servant. He, sir, and this, I would argue, still applies today in politics... He, sir, who builds upon popularity, builds upon a shifting sand.
2: And he would have said that in April of 1867, knowing that he and Johnny MacDonald, his uh, latter-day friend, because in his early political career in Canada, McGee was on the other side of MacDonald, but uh, because of the really strong anti-Catholic views of George Brown and the Toronto Globe, he was driven into the waiting arms of the Liberal Conservative Party of Macdonald and Cartier. Um, nonetheless, uh, McGee had decided, not having made the federal cabinet, uh, at the creation of Canada 1867, he had gone to Macdonald and they had agreed that he would leave political life for a civil service appointment that would allow him to pursue uh, the literary career that he had long wanted and that his wife and family were very keen to have so that he would <laughs> be removed from uh, from the hurly-burly of what in the end tragically turned out to be Canada's first and probably most prominent political assassination prior to at least the Quebec 70, Quebec 1970 assassinations of Pierre Laporte
1: well yeah. since we're talking about assassinations in this father confederation context I think Canadians would be shocked to find out that we also shot another one of our family fathers
2: y- yes there it's interesting and I I don't want to to romanticize or overly make dramatic uh, these stories, but the fact is that Canada was a pretty violent place in the uh, mid 19th century. It was a it was a pretty rough rough spot uh, in, in, at times and in places. And we talked earlier about elections. I mean, people were killed in some of these elections. It just got that it got that uh, uh, that aggressive and that that hotly tempered. But George Brown, who was uh, was a critical um, maker of the the coalition government that made the Dominion of Canada possible. It's hard to overstate just how important um, that Brown was. Brown was the dominant political power in Ontario in the 1860s. Johnny MacDonald, who goes on to be, you know, what seems like the endless Prime Minister of pre- and post-Confederation Canada, was for most of that time, especially in the 1860s, uh, he was always a minority player in Ontario, that for every seat in Parliament in Ontario that that Macdonald commanded, uh, George Brown commanded more and often many more. So why so, do we
1: shoot him? What, what happened?
2: Well, that the shooting doesn't have as much to do with politics as it does to do with uh, the way he ran the, the Globe newspaper. It was a disgruntled employee, George Bennett. Uh, got very annoyed at the way Brown treated him and pulled the gun and shot Mr. Brown in the leg and uh, the leg became infected and he died uh, a few days later in, in 1880. But it just is interesting to me that the two of the major players in the Confederation debate were dead within a decade by bullets.
1: Well, as I look back on it and I look forward both, I don't know how fair we've been to these founding fathers. So let's talk about, if you want to, what they miss if they if they if John A. And McGee and Brown and Carche arrived in Kingston today or Pembroke and they looked around what would they say they got wrong
2: well i don't know that they were very practical people and and uh, they they had seen at least a couple of earlier iterations of what they thought was a government a governmental structure that was going to work it didn't so they were they were practical people they were uh, flexible people not because they lacked principles but uh, this was a pretty you know big piece of geography, very hostile physical environment think about it uh it is a huge piece of real estate uh on the border of a of a rising power in the united states um and um to to what did they miss well i th- let's let's deal with that i think if they came back today and looked at their deal of eighteen sixty seven I think they would be stunned. To find out that they were so wrong on the upper house in the federal the new federal parliament at Ottawa, because you see people in Atlantic, Canada, and French Canadians thought that the key to protecting their regional or their minority interests at the national level at the new national level was the Senate of Canada, where they would have regional representation Ontario, yes, Ontario would get what it had wanted for years, which is rep by pop in the lower House of Commons, no longer this business that Ontario and Quebec would get the same representation which allowed, according to George Brown, for the French domination of uh, the very rapidly growing, wealth creating uh, Ontario that's being called upon to forever and a day subsidize the rest of the land. Uh, Sound familiar to some (laughs) of the charges Uh, that we will know? I've heard that
1: in recent years. Yes. Yes,
2: uh, It wasn't too many years later that an Ontario politician from Brockville, Ontario, said federalism cannot mean that Ontario is to be the milch cow of the (laughs) Dominion. Uh, So they they, they got that wrong completely. The Senate uh, turned out to be a nullity. It just just, uh, ceased to be uh, anything important really after about the first five years. Think about it. They gave to the federal prime minister the un- alloyed right to make appointments to the uh, upper chamber well Well, if i
1: ever get an appointment to the upper chamber which i've dreamed of since i was in high school i'd support that right well i I got to tell you
2: anybody who's been in the canadian senate uh for the last 100 of what 154 years would certainly agree with you uh, by and large and you see by this point western canada uh which is talked about as Rupert's Land essentially. Yes, there are the colonies theres the colonies of Vancouver Island and British Columbia beyond the mountains, but they're a population very small, and they too, though as part of the British Empire, they're very accessible by by sea. So they know they've got the protection of the Royal Navy if they run into trouble and they had had some trouble in the Pacific Northwest with the Americans 54-40 or fight. fight, And that was about where was the actual border there on the Northwest between what is now the province of British Columbia and the state of Washington. But that vast territory in between Rupert's land, uh, that is about to be uh, the next testing ground for, well, what is this Canada you have created? And let me tell you to to this day, if you're in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, and Albertans particularly, uh, feel deep and, I think, justifiable grievance that, well, we have more population than the entire Atlantic region, and they have very much more power in that upper chamber at Ottawa. But the Senate uh, turned out to be uh, much less than they imagined it would be.
1: What the- about Native people? What would uh, McDonald, Karche, Galt, McGee... What would they say about that today?
2: I think they, and this is entirely speculative. I think uh, they they would. I think they, some of them would have been very surprised about how incredibly resilient um, many of those indigenous communities are and have been, especially given the way we treated them. I mean, the attitude in the you know the European. North American world uh, towards indigenous peoples was very very bad i mean and i don 't want to because i 'm not an expert but but I think uh, there's no question that uh, that without the protection of the royal you know supervisory power you know I think it would have been infinitely worse but I think that you know the the uh, that the fathers of confederation would have been Surprise! They wanted to assimilate French Canadians, and they certainly expected that there would be a significant assimilation of uh, of uh, indigenous peoples.
1: Well, what about these days in Canada? Uh, we often look back and uh, we judge these people, the Fathers of the Confederation. Well, what are we getting wrong about them? What do we not understand? About that.
2: Well, you know, we don't, today for example, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, the, the role of religion in this society, I mean, so these were mostly very religious um, Victorian men who, um, you know, believed in a Victorian God, uh, who, a Victorian God who smiled very broadly on the British Empire. You know, and you just have to look at the literature of the time to see this small island, you know, in the North Atlantic. I mean, how is it possible against the great continental powers of Europe, France particularly? Uh, England uh, with twenty eight million people was on its way to being the global power. The, One
1: quarter of the earth. Pardon me? One quarter exactly. of the Earth. Exactly.
2: We all remember those maps, you know, the yeah. the greatest empire that has been the yellow the red, the red the red markers for the for the you know for india for australia for new zealand for canada and a host of other colonies uh, in the 19th and to the middle of the 20th century the second thing i think these fathers of confederation would be utterly astonished by and here they would think they did get it wrong because typical of the fathers of confederation was george brown who said i don't really expect the the provinces to be much more than glorified municipalities. Well, was he wrong? (laughs) Was he wrong? The provinces very quickly uh, moved in to fill a lot of the space that was originally designed for the Canadian Senate. The Canadian Senate was going to be be counterweight at the national level for regional interests that were widely regarded as being very different Well, they didn't get expressed in Ottawa through the Senate. They got vigorously uh, represented um, in the new national community by provincial governments. Now, part of that had to do with uh, economic matters. Uh, Some of the powers uh, that were given to uh, the provinces didn't look like very much back then. then. But 20 years later, in the 1870s and 1880s, all of a sudden, uh, oh, so the... The provinces have control over something like uh, hydropower. All well, that gives the provinces the power over a vital new commodity like electricity, which was a very important thing if you had any prospect of uh, being in a you know a manufacturing economy. And that uh, they miss that completely. Um,
1: and it's two Kingstonians once again. We've talked about. Well, exactly. Who fight
2: this battle out? It's two Kingstonians who fight this battle out because. The irony about that is, we talked about Johnny McDonald, the, the preeminent national politician at the Confederation table because while other people, George Brown uh, was there earlier, Alexander Tillich Galt, Brown and Galt were talking about a federation for, for Canada way before Macdonald. And when that started to be talked about, McDonald was very lukewarm to the idea. But when the ball got rolling, and when the American threat of, of post-Civil War invasion and saber-rattling got really serious, and when the British imperial government said, oh, by the way, the, um, uh, the Americans may take you, and we don't want you. Yeah. We're not yeah, paying yeah. the we bill anymore, you. so yeah. you have to find a new arrangement. It was MacDonald who then took charge of that train, and he was the one... Uh, who made the deal. He brought the players together, he kept them together. Imagine that canoe firing down the Petawawa River through very very difficult challenging rapids. The guy who kept that canoe afloat and headed it in the right and safe direction was the member from Kingston, Johnny McDonald. But the other guy at the table uh, was this quiet lawyer judge, um, particularly at Quebec City, the the conference that really mattered when they fleshed out the uh, who's going to be in charge of what nationally and provincially. And by the way, when you look back to the debates about the division of powers, they spent hardly a day... Talking on, about the provinces. But no, talking about the division of powers. Uh, they spent much more time talking about the, the, the Senate. Well, Mowat becomes Premier of Ontario, uh, and he simply... He leads a campaign very shrewdly and drove MacDonald nuts. Uh, using, I might say, that is Mowat... Father of Confederation, he was there at the table. He was there with Macdonald when they were working out the division of powers. So he was not somebody who was a Johnny come lately to this, new to the game. New to the game, and he was a very good lawyer and judge. He comes now to be Premier of Ontario, and he doesn't like what he sees as the centralizing tendencies of this new federal government, this new national government run by his old Kingston. you know, mentor, uh, Johnny MacDonald, and he's also seeing some technological change that's going to give Ontario some very real economic advantage. He wants to seize and protect that, so he leads a campaign over almost the entirety of his premiership, which was 24 years, 1872, till he leaves to go to Ottawa to be Minister of Justice in the Laurier administration for 18 months, long enough to solve or help solve the Manitoba school's question in, in that last few years of the 19th century, Moat uses the courts, he uses the law courts, and not in Canada. He goes to the Supreme Court of the Empire, as it were, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and they, led by two Scotsmen, the Justices Watson and Haldane.
1: Let me back up. George Brown's a Scotsman, John A. Macdonald's a Scotsman, so is Oliver Moore. Oh
2: yes. The Scots, so what's the
1: role of Scotland oh, in Oh, the
2: Scots have a lot to do with Canada in the 19th century, not just in its politics, but it's in in its business, its banking. Uh, this The Scots community was really really important and uh, and it's interesting that the, our good friend, he was a friend of yours and he was a friend of mine, the late uh, uh, Richard Gwyn, the last biographer of, of Johnny MacDonald, he made an interesting observation that isn't it interesting, he said, and I talked to Richard about this, that it was a Scotsman who brought these factions within British North America, and at its core, the English faction and the French faction, together in what turned out to be a reasonably stable federal arrangement, and one that for all its troubles, never ever came to the disastrous, deadly, and that the American Republic faced in that those
1: horrible years. So, what is it about Scotland then?
2: Well, uh, you know, what is it? They say the the um, the Orkneymen joined uh, Hudson's Bay Company <laughs> to get warm. <laughs> it's not a great line. <laughs> I just love that.
1: I'm the only one at the table who's lived in the Arctic, and I agree with
2: that. that so uh the scots well this you know the, you know what's so interesting about we've talked about community and about a new nationality well you know um confederation is the product of the second half of the 19th century not entirely but significantly the 1850s and 1860s the scottish enlightenment the product of the late 18th and early 19th century the scottish in, scottish enlightenment Uh, south of us had an enormous amount to do with the American Revolution. James Madison was a student of Dr. Witherspoon at the College of New Jersey we now know as Princeton, a place that was shot through with the ideology and the political thought and economy of the Scottish Enlightenment. So the the trail from Edinburgh, the, the Scottish Enlightenment, through Princeton to the Republic that is America is very clear here in Canada, it's 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 even bigger. I mean, it's in business. It's in it's in George Brown, the most powerful English Canadian journalist of the of the 19th century. Uh, everybody running, uh, you know, the Hudson Bay Company, and almost as many running the uh, the Northwest Company, the Bank of Montreal, the Canadian Pacific Railway. Uh, they were Scotsmen in all of those elements of business and um, politics and and the media, uh, but but the attitude of the Scots, and Richard, uh, our friend Richard Gwynne would say that, you know, surely a Scot, a Highland Scot, would understand the tensions between a significant minority and an English majority. Wouldn't be hard, Richard told me more than once, imagining as a Scot, that you had to keep an eye on the English because left to their own devices, they seem to have a natural metropolitan imperial domination complex. And uh, uh, my words, not his, but, but uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk in Ontario about oh, all these terrible separatists. Uh, you know, they're always in Quebec. You know, the odd one is out there in British Columbia saying crazy things. Ontarians are, have a very poor understanding that in a way the separatist who really mattered was that mutton-chop, quiet Scots-Canadian out of Kingston, Oliver Mowat, in that he took the original design of the Canadian Confederation. And flipped it around. And with the help of Scottish law lords in the highest court in the empire, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and turned key components of that uh, arrangement that they worked out at Quebec on its head. And by that I mean where it was clearly the intent at Quebec City to vest, you know, uh, residual powers in the federal, not the local governments. What the Fathers of Confederation quickly concluded was the great mistake of the American uh, constitution makers is they had enumerated powers in that first American constitution, in that constitution uh, at uh, out of Philadelphia, the powers for... Washington enumerated the powers to the states enumerated, and those powers not enumerated just became states' power. It was, you know, in, in when they made the deal for Confederation, they made sure, because they believed the majority of these people, that they needed to have a strong central government. They couldn't allow the American mistake to be repeated. If they had, you know, um, a two strong regional powers, they would be torn apart like the American Republic. That's what they thought they had done, but of all people, and from all places, the unmaker of that scheme for, in not all respects, but in key respects, was the Premier of Ontario, <coughs> driven mostly by economic motives, uh, because Ontario, having with, having with this new arrangement, got uh, the federal arrangement, and you know what they say, or what was said at the time, Well, Ontario now has what it wants. The Dominion of Canada will truly be Ontario from sea to shining sea. We've got the clear majority, or not the the largest number of seats in the House of Commons, uh, and we've got, in terms of taxing powers and residual powers, they're mostly in a national parliament that we're going to control. Now we'll turn our minds to what we have as a province, and uh, with some of the economic developments and the technological developments immediately after Confederation, they quickly realize we have got to make sure that we don't don 't lose or we get to define what the powers of you know lands and mines and resources really mean
1: well uh, then okay who 's the father of confederation then? Is it McDonald or Mo
2: no, I think it 's clearly mcdonald i think uh, I think it 's clearly McDonald because. At its core, it's an arrangement that proves much more workable between the English and French communities in Canada. I keep saying it, let me repeat. That deal they made that brought about the Dominion of Canada, 80% of the people covered by that deal live in in Ontario and Quebec.
1: Well, okay, so we've talked about if they were here today, uh, what they would be surprised about, what uh, they missed you know, indigenous people, big time. What do we miss when we judge them?
2: Well, I think, I think we it's We look har- back on them, I mean. Yeah, I think, it's hard to, I think it's very hard for people today to imagine a number of things. One, how could religion be as important to them as it seems to have been? Or put another way, you can't understand the fight over minority educational rights if you don't understand the importance for religion in 19th century Canada. Because schools were about not just teaching the three R's, reading writing and arithmetic, but making sure that young people uh, were imbued with the values of their community and their society, which was overwhelmingly Christian. The problem with Christianity was it was very fractured. I mean, forget the Catholics for a moment, the Protestants had a hard time agreeing on well what bible are we going to use you know you had the non-conformists you had for example the the presbyterian split between the church of scotland traditionalists who accepted fully a church you know a, a, a state supported church like the anglicans well the free kirk the reform uh presbyterians absolutely not church and state should be completely separated. Churches and religions are really important. They should be supported by their adherents. You cannot tax people for churches. That's separate, that's a, that, That's only going to lead to trouble. It's really hard today to imagine what the effect of that American Civil War was. When they met at that first constitutional conference in Charlottetown, what we now would know as Labor Day weekend, Nineteen it's eighteen sixty four. That was the very week when General Sherman, <laughs> representing the Union Army, and the 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 mood, the momentum in the American Civil War was shifting very dramatically in favor of the North, which had been badly beaten in the first two years of that war, and it didn't. It looked there for the longest while that, in fact. The result of the American Civil War would be two countries. Uh, south and the Confederacy would triumph, and that the, the the creation of 1776, 1783 would end up in two pieces. That didn't happen, but the um, the the American Civil War was so bloody, and it was so uh, and it was so close. I mean, a million people, a uh, 750,000. Soldiers died in the American, and we're civil- all watching it. And we're Canada. watching it. It's right next door. I mean, I don't know whether you've ever been to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, but you pretty, pretty town, the size of Gananoque, the size of, slightly smaller than Renfrew, Ontario. Fifty thousand people died, or were seriously wounded, in that bloodletting, on a three-day weekend, the Canada Day weekend, in a beautiful Pennsylvania town like that was something that Canadians were watching and with just shock and horror um and so the Ameri- the what happened with the the United States during the 1860s how they they their divisions they could not heal they continued to deepen and they finally broke apart ironically because you know Mr Lincoln as president actually acted on what he believed, that uh, this country has to decide. It cannot live half free and half slave. And so the, the the presence of the American Civil War, and it was four long years, and then the aftermath was messy and tragic in so many ways. I think the other thing I would say, one of the great lessons I don't think has been fully internalized, if if, if understood at all, is that if there's one lesson I take as somebody who spent nearly 30 years of his life in politics. Uh, and I understand from politics that there are very strong opinions on issues of trade and issues of, you know, language and culture and issues of, of you know, symbols and, and a whole bunch of things we could, we could enumerate. Uh, but in a country as lightly populated as Canada, where unlike the United States, you know, you could always retreat to a new part of the geography and just let the world go by, yeah, you lose know, yourself. you could, yeah, you could lose yourself in Northwestern Ontario or in some part of South Central Manitoba or whatever. Hard to do, hard, much harder to do that in the United States, which had 10, 12 times the population. But the the real legacy, I think, of Confederation. And strangely, I think the great legacy of McDonald, despite some of the criticism, which has been leveled at him in later times, is that if Confederation and the success, the imperfect success of the arrangement, uh, it is this, it was a triumph of moderation that George Brown was a brilliant journalist, incredible advocate, but he was in many ways uh, a radical. He was a radical on the uh, issue of what was possible in terms of french english relations or or he seemed to be
1: he wanted to be right more than win than win
2: yes, but when 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 it really got critical to his everlasting credit, he buried the hatchet with a guy he detested and said, "I will lay aside my personal and my political bias we 've got this can 't go on we 've got to find a solution, and the solution is a coalition." to agree on some kind
1: of federal union. So, it's Canada Day 154. We've been talking about the first one. We've been talking about how we got to the first Canada Day, etc. What are you going to do the rest of the day?
2: Well, I'm going to have a nice drink and enjoy the sunshine and uh, look up into the blue sky and think what will tomorrow bring that yesterday couldn't have imagined which also is the story of Confederation.
1: You put it better than me, my old friend. Cool to talk to you. Great to
2: see
0: you. That was Art Milne and Sean Conway, two old friends and champions of bringing to life the real truth and nothing but the truth of Canadian political history. But among all those stories of what happened back in Canada in the 19th century, let's not forget what Cadmus de Lorme said only this past week. Let's do something. We have a suggestion. First, try celebrating Canada today by doing something a little different. For instance, you might want to go down to the waters of any local river or lake and light a small candle and let it drift out along with others, perhaps put there by your friends and neighbours. Nearly a thousand candles might do it for today, but next year we will probably need more. And if you don't feel like singing O Canada... Try humming it with your friends and neighbors, if only to share the profound heartbreak of those indigenous people as near and dear to us as Pekwaknagon. Yes, we do live in a country founded by fallible Fathers of Confederation, but their Dominion Day has passed. It's not really about them anymore. It's about us and what we do. And we can and must do something. I'm Kristen Marchand. And for our producer, Barry Conway, we'd like to wish you all a quiet Canada Day down by the water. Good day, and God bless.